Well, Ron, you really did it this morning, my brother. Where are you? Where are you hiding? There you are. Okay. That was great. That was great. You captured a little of the enthusiasm of that grand day when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds gather and they are convinced that the great messianic kingdom is coming right then and there and course, what an amazing change of events, right? Just a few days later, those adoring, adoring throngs are calling out and saying, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify this man and grant us Barabbas in his place. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It did my heart good as well to see the children's choir up there and singing. Just love those faces. They worked hard and did a good job, and I really appreciate that. You know, children are, they're a blessing because they're so fresh. They're not old and jaded like you and I. They still see things in really black and white, very sharp and vivid pictures. A week or so ago, a couple of my grandchildren were traveling by car and talking about Jesus, things they had learned in Sunday school and Awana and so forth. And they were just rehearsing the fact that Jesus came and that he died on a cross and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. One of the older grandchildren said to one of the younger ones, yes, and he's coming again. And to which the younger one replied, I'll look for him. (laughs) And so peering out the window of the car, just looking for Jesus. After a couple of minutes, I don't see him yet. The older one said, well, I think when he comes, there'll be all kinds of bright lights. Okay, I'll look for bright lights. Mile after mile going down the road, we, the status reports came in. I still don't see him yet. It's cute, isn't it? But you know what? It's profound. It is absolutely profound. You know, that Jesus says that unless you are converted and become like children, you will not see the kingdom of God. Unless you become like children. Unless you take the word of God and act on it. Jesus is coming again, beloved. Is that true? Could it be at any moment? So why don't we look out the window? No, I'm serious. Why do we say, that's a childish thing to do? We're not going to look out the window. Why? Because we really don't think he could come at any moment. But a child does. A child will look out the window. Because the Word of God is fresh and clean and clear to them. Jesus can come at any time. Okay, let's look. Let's look for Him. Oh, may by the Spirit of God we capture that kind of childlike faith. Innocence and commitment to the Word of God. huh? I pray as we go into the Easter season together that that this becomes fresh for you. That it's not just an old story that you've heard. Ho-hum. 
I know how it comes out. I've heard all this before. I pray that it's fresh. I pray that it's new. I pray that it captivates you and captures your imagination to the point where you'd be looking out the car window too and saying, I don't see him yet, but I'm looking. I'm looking. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, page 721. If you're looking through the Pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 40. When Ron told me what the choir would, would be singing for us this morning, I, I said, well, then I need to go to Isaiah chapter 40 and preach. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. Is in the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 40. May I say something to you that's obvious, but perhaps you've forgotten. The Bible is a Jewish book written by primarily Jewish men, almost without exception. It is a Jewish book. May I also say to you that the Old Testament makes up the majority of our Bibles. May I also say to you, and by way of reminder, that when Paul says all Scripture is inspired, right, and profitable for teaching, training, reproof, training in righteousness, that he's speaking primarily about the Old Testament. May I say one other thing to you? That when Jesus came and spoke to the nation, his contemporaries, frequently he said to them, have you not what? Read or heard? Have you not heard? Have you not read? Never did he say, you know, the Bible's really confusing. Its message is unclear. All of those stories and names that are hard to pronounce and people and how do you keep it all in your mind? No wonder you're confused and don't understand that I'm Messiah. He doesn't say that at all, does he? Have you not heard? Have you not read? There was an expectation that the people would know. Beyond that, maybe just one other point. I think I already said one other point, but one other, one other point. When the apostles went out to preach the gospel into the known world, they were preaching from the Old Testament. And as they preached from the Old Testament, they in the same way would quote the Old Testament and then move on, draw out its implication and its meaning. And never did they say to the Gentiles, you know what? That's a Jewish book. I know you're Gentiles. Hard to understand. You don't find that. You don't find that. Beloved, God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us in His Word. God does not stutter. God has spoken very clearly. He has given us everything necessary for life and godliness, and He has given it to us in the Scriptures. And with it, it comes the expectation as the people of God and people of faith that we will apply ourselves to the Word of God. 
I pray for me, for you, for all of us, that the Word of God would be rich and fresh every time you come to it. Every time. Isaiah chapter 40. Book of Isaiah, just to review for you, can be divided into two sections. Basically, chapters 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 66. You can roughly divide the book into two almost equal sections. Chapters 1 through 39 are addressed to the nation of Judah in her rebellion. Written during the days of the lengthy ministry of the prophet Isaiah, most believe he ministered from 739 to 686 B.C. He had a very long ministry, almost 50 years. Chapters 1 through 39, judgment to a rebellious people. Chapters 40 through 66, there is a change in the orientation and outlook of the prophet. Beginning in chapter 40 and running through the end of the book, he writes as if the judgment has already occurred. Prior to that, he is telling the nation, Babylon is coming. And because of your wickedness, you will be swept away. Beginning in chapter 40, he takes up the orientation, looking ahead almost 80 years into the future, and it's as if the captivity has already occurred. And then he is speaking to the people, and he's speaking to them about deliverance. Deliverance. He takes them in the prophet's eye into the future and says, okay, here's where you are. You have been judged. You're in the captivity. Now what? And he picks it up and he begins to speak to them about deliverance. Chapters 40 through 66, message of deliverance. And it can be broken down essentially into three subsections. Beginning in chapter 40 and running through chapter 48, he's talking about deliverance from captivity. Deliverance from captivity. It has, a, it has a first application and meaning to the deliverance from the Babylonian captivity into which they are. Beyond that, beginning in chapter 49 through chapter 57, he takes up the topic of the suffering servant of the Lord. The one who will come and suffer and die. And of course, we see that most clearly in Isaiah chapter 53, to deliver his people from their sin. And it is as they are delivered from their sin that the nation then will be delivered, ultimately. Chapters 58 through 66 look in the prophet's eye way into the future, to the time of the future days for God's people, looking ahead all the way into the great millennial kingdom and the eternal state yet to come. All written from the perspective, you're in the captivity already. This is what's coming now. I won't turn there with you. You can jot it down, check it on your own. We see the the subdivisions clearly pointed out for us in this second half of the book. Chapter 48, verse 22. Chapter 57, verse 21. There's the expression, there is no peace for the wicked. It ends the subsection and begins the next. Chapter 40 itself is like a prelude. It's like a prelude or or an overture to a musical composition. Now, you, you know that a prelude or an overture will pick up the various 
musical themes that will be brought out in the composition itself, and it will and it will bring them forward and weave them together and just give you snippets of them. Not a complete picture, but you'll just hear little little melodies and themes that were rolling through the overture, and then, of course, later you'll see them developed in the musical composition itself. Well, Isaiah 40 performs a similar function as the, as the doorway to enter into the second half of this book. So in chapter 40, the themes that will be picked up through the rest of the book of Isaiah are brought forward for us, and we're given a glimpse, a glimpse of what's to come. The reason I point all this out to you is is because the predictions of deliverance that are are brought up here in chapter 40 do not exclusively, exclusively refer to one single period of time in the nation's history. Actually, it refers to three times, three separate events that will come upon the nation. The deliverance from the Babylonian captivity is the first. The next event that will come to the nation in which Isaiah 40 prefigures is the coming of Messiah himself at his first advent. And then the third theme of deliverance that Isaiah 40 refers to, references, is the final return of Messiah to deliver his nation at the end of the tribulation and to usher in his great kingdom. So... We see the theme of deliverance given one, two, three times. One of them, two of them actually have historically occurred, right? The Babylonian return and the coming of Christ to the nation and Palm Sunday the first time and then the future return of Christ. They're all brought up in Isaiah chapter 40. And if we don't understand that, then the chapter becomes exceedingly confusing to us. So we need to understand this. We can illustrate this, I think. By considering mountain peaks. Some call them prophetic mountain peaks. When I'm driving up Euclid and I see the beautiful mountains and, you know, go backwards a couple of weeks and they were snow-capped and they were exceedingly gorgeous. When I'm driving up Euclid Avenue, I see big mountains, but I cannot see Mount Baldy. For that, I have to, I have to go a little further west, right, and drive up Mountain Avenue and I can see Mount Baldy. The mountains are there, and they're, they're one behind another. Depending on the angle where you are, you might see multiple peaks. But what you, what you fail to see are the great valleys that occur between those peaks. Isn't that true? To see that, you need an aerial view. You need a flyover. That's what the Bible gives us when we look at prophecy together. We get a flyover. We get an aerial view. We get to see peaks of prophetic fulfillment that the contemporaries, when they were written, were unable to discern. The peaks were always there. They, from their perspective, were just unable to discern one behind another. They were not able to see or know that Christ would come twice and His comings would be separated by more than 2,000 years and counting. Only the aerial view tells you that. So we have all of this going on, swirling here in the background of chapter 40. As I say, it is a chapter about deliverance. It is a chapter about individual deliverance, which 
eventuates in national deliverance. The nation can never be delivered until the individuals who comprise the nation are delivered from their sin. That's why Isaiah chapter 53 is so huge to this section of the book. It is the locus of of the deliverer. Now, because because chapter 40 has such wide reference, that is, Babylonian captivity, first coming of Jesus, second coming of Jesus, and individual redemption, Isaiah 53, because it speaks to all of these issues, it is exceedingly appropriate to us this morning. In fact, there are three timeless truths from God that we can mine out of this chapter. And we're only going to be looking at the first eight verses this morning. And if I don't get going, we won't even get there yet. But there are three timeless truths that we can mine out of these first eight verses. And the reason I want to do this with you is so that you might find deliverance yourself this Easter season. This chapter is about deliverance. In fact, I've entitled this message, Looking for Deliverance. Looking for Deliverance, because that's really what it's about. Looking for deliverance. So let's dive in, shall we? Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, page 721 in those pew Bibles. Looking at verses 1 and 2 together and looking at it under a a heading called God's proclamation is redemption. His proclamation is redemption. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah begins this section of his book with a message of comfort for the Jewish nation. Let your eyes just glance up to a couple of verses prior to this in chapter 39. Where the Lord questions Hezekiah and says, Who are these people that you are showing around the the castle and in the treasure the treasure rooms of the castle. You were, you were showing off your wealth, Hezekiah. Who were you showing it to? Well, I was showing it to these emissaries from Babylon. That's who I was showing it to. They heard I was sick and they've come to see that I've been made well. And, and I was just showing them around the place and kind of happy, kind of proud with all that I have. Verse 5, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house And all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, For there will be peace and truth in my day. An interesting response to a judgment statement, right? That's Junior's problem, right? But in any case, fast forward 80 years. White space at the end of verse 8, chapter 39, to verse 1, chapter 40, in the white space, 80 years are gone. 
Not really, but prophetically. So Isaiah is now picturing, as I said, that they are now in that captivity. The nation has been leveled, the temple destroyed, the, the treasuries looted, the people slaughtered and carried into, into the Babylonian captivity. Ultimately, in 586, the final destruction of the temple. And now comes a message of comfort. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. The capital of the nation, Jerusalem. Notice he's speaking to Jerusalem. Beginning of verse 2, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Do you see that? He speaks to the capital city, as it were, because this will stand in for the nation. The capital kind of personifies the nation. And what he is saying to the capital is, you have been under harsh dominion of Gentile overlords, Jerusalem, but your day of deliverance has arrived. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to the city, to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Basically, the prophet gives three reasons why the people are to be comforted here. Verse 2. He provides three reasons. And these three reasons have the, the historical fulfillment and the future fulfillment all pulled together. They are the mountain peaks that I spoke of. So let me try to unpack it with you a little bit. He says, first, comfort of comfort, speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her that her warfare has ended. Do you see that? That's the first reason for her comfort. Her warfare has ended. He's looking forward in time prophetically to the day when Israel's captivity will end. It will end. Now, we know historically that it did end, right? During the, the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, the decree of Cyrus, the Persian they were able to, to, to have a remnant come back into their land and begin, at least on a limited basis, to reestablish themselves in the, na- in the homeland of Israel. Never as a sovereign nation, always under Gentile overlords. But at least they did come back. So there was a historic fulfillment of this. Your, your warfare has ended. Your hard service, your, your bondage to Babylon is over. You are, come, you are going to come back into the land. We know it happened. We also know that at the first coming of Christ, Jesus offered the nation an opportunity to receive the Messianic kingdom in which they would have been freed from Gentile overlords. We see it in Mark chapter 1. If you're really dexterous, you can turn there, page 994. Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15, Mark 1, 14, 15, page 994. And after John, that is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was the message of Israel's king when he came to her. This is the gospel, by the way. Notice the use of it there, the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, it's called. The message of the gospel includes the Messiah's reign, Messiah's kingdom. 
And what he's saying to the nation is, the time has been fulfilled. Your deliverance is at hand. I am your deliverer. Repent and believe the gospel and I will deliver you. Spiritually, absolutely. But from the political overlords, yes, from them too. But you cannot have that without having this first, which is personal deliverance from sin. Now, we know the nation refused. Isn't that right? He came in, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a few days later, they're saying, away with this man. Away with him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And thus, the nation of Israel remains under Gentile dominion even to this day. Now, I know there are those in the nation of Israel who would take exception with me to make that kind of a statement, but let me just tell you this. Were it not for the United States and the might of her economy and her military, the nation of Israel would be pushed into the Mediterranean Sea. She would not survive a fortnight. She still exists under Gentile overlords. And the Bible tells us she will until her king comes and puts his enemies as a footstool under his feet and he delivers his people. Jesus will return, beloved. Is that true? Are you willing to look out a car window to find out? And when he comes, he will smash the kingdom of Antichrist. The last great, horrific Gentile ruler. And he will free his people. He will free his people. Back to Isaiah. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity has been removed, the prophet goes on to say. Her iniquity has been removed. In a historic sense, that was true. Seventy years in the, in the Babylonian captivity, one year for every seven that they refused to leave the land and its Sabbath rest under the Mosaic Covenant. Is that right? It is right, because that's what the Bible tells you. Why 70 years of captivity? Because for 490 years, they violated the Mosaic Covenant and they refused to give the land its, its Sabbath rest. And so God says, fine, I'll, I'll provide the Sabbath rest for you. I'll condense it all down 70 years. You're out, land rests. 70 years. The 70 years in the eyes of the prophet have come to an end. And he's saying that your, your deliverance is here. Your iniquity has been taken care of. It has been removed. You have, you have paid the debt. But it's deeper than that. It's more than that. Because it requires not just the paying of a national debt, but an individual. There's an individual obligation. There's individual iniquity. And that individual iniquity can only be taken care of. It can only be removed by a substitute. You cannot go into a captivity for some period of time and deal with the sin of your soul. You don't go to hell for just a while. Until you've burned it off somehow. To be confined to the lake of fire is to be confined to the lake of fire for eternity. 
The only way our individual iniquity and their individual iniquity could be dealt with is by a substitute. And so Jesus cries from the cross, John chapter 19, verse 30, It is finished. It's finished. It's done. The sacrifice has been made. Iniquity has been atoned for. For all who will by faith come to understand and believe that He is Isaiah's suffering servant. Turn to the right, Isaiah 53. Just be reminded. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, page 737. The prophet is looking forward in time. And he says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Drop down to verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Will bear their iniquities. For iniquity has been removed. Nationally and historically in the Babylonian captivity, but individually as they come to see that Messiah alone is the suffering servant. You know what the problem of the first coming is? They're looking for the wrong guy. They weren't looking for the suffering servant. Had they received him for who he truly is, their sin would have been atoned for and the kingdom would have come. Beloved, it will come. They will receive him. Their iniquity has been removed, he says. The end of verse 2 she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, double is not a statement of mathematical proportion. It's a statement of completeness. They have received the complete consequence of their sin. The sin of the violation of the Mosaic Covenant and the, and the refusal to give the land its Sabbath in the 70 years of captivity. The refusal to receive Christ at His first coming in their continuing alienation from God, an alienation that will only be broken in the fires of the great tribulation. Why else, by the way, does the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 7, in referring to the tribulation, call it the time of Jacob's trouble? The time of Jacob's trouble. What is the purpose of the tribulation? It is to break the rebellion of the nation of Israel, and it is to crush the Gentile overlords that have been set above her. It is to return the earth, to snatch it from the hand of Satan and return it to the hand of God. She's been fully punished for her sins, he says. How does all of this deliverance come about? What's the entrance fee? 
Verses 3 and 4. Repentance. Repentance. It's fascinating. Verses 3 and 4. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. These verses speak of a custom among the the monarchs of the Eastern world. And that is they would send out before them a herald. No internet, no cell phones, no means of communication other than by voice, basically. So they would send forth a herald in front of them and saying, the king is coming. And when the king gets here, He is going to have a message for you that you must hear. But what you need to do is get ready for him. So fill up the potholes, straighten out the crooked roads, reinforce the bridges, make the highway straight for the king to come. By the way, I remember many years ago, back in the very early 1980s, I was working in Boston at the time, working for a bank, And Ronald Reagan was to come to the city and make a major policy speech. And so they sent the advance team in ahead of time into the city of Boston. And the advance team, you know, they set up where the podium is going to be and they work out all those details. They work out all the security concerns, you know, snipers, where they need to be, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, back in the 80s, same way. But it was also interesting to me what the city of Boston did. City of Boston went around and filled in every single pothole in all of their wretched streets. Would they fill them in for the taxpayers? Not a chance. The president's coming to town, at least along his route. Let's make sure there's no potholes. So the potholes are all filled in. All the graffiti that you could see from the highway is now painted over. So we have a a graffiti-free zone for the president to come into the city. All the windows on all the public buildings are all washed on the outside. Let's get this place shaped up. The president's coming. Same basic idea. Same basic idea. Clear the way of the Lord. Make smooth the highway for him. The picture here the prophet's giving us is to get ready for for God to visit the city of Jerusalem. Prepare the way. Because God is coming, and He is coming in the person of Messiah. By the way, the Gospel writers, they see this connection. And accordingly, all four of them reference this passage. And they apply it to the ministry of that funny guy who ate locusts and walked around in a hairy garment, the big leather belt, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Israel was to prepare to receive her Messiah. How? Through personal repentance from sin. How do I know that? Because Matthew chapter 3 tells me that. Matthew chapter 3, just listen. Now, in those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John's message. By the way, that was Jesus' initial message too, Matthew tells us. Chapter 4, verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we get ready to receive the Deliverer? The answer is repentance. Fill up the potholes, straighten out the roads, paint over the graffiti to repent. What is repentance? It is the turning of the whole individual from self to God. It begins with a recognition of our need. It progresses to a sorrow over our sin. A decision to turn from that sin to God and a subsequent obedient lifestyle. Is it something we work up by our own strength? Of course not. Scripture tells us it is the gift of God. It is of His grace. But it is a full and complete 180. A turning from sin to God. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, for the nation of Israel, national repentance is preceded by individual repentance. We can never get away from this notion. God gives us revelation that he is dealing with the nation as a whole. But the nation is composed of individuals. So there is always the individual component. And that's true of repentance. Listen again to what the prophet Zechariah says. He's speaking of the day in the future when the nation will turn. Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn, listen to this, Every family by itself. Every family by itself. A voice is calling to you. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. Turn from your sin to God. Fill up the potholes. Straighten out the road. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. To quote John the Baptist from Luke 4. God proclaims redemption. We prepare for it through repentance. The final piece is that His promise is reliable. Verses 5 and 8. 5 through 8. The third timeless truth for us this morning is that His promise is 
reliable. Now, put your thinking cap on. The nation went into exile after these prophecies were written. The nation went into exile. Their capital city was destroyed. Their temple leveled. Above where the temple stood, now fly the standards of the heathen. If I may say, and they continue to do so. It's called the Dome of the Rock. The very site, the temple of God, now displays heathen symbols. What is the nation to conclude? What is the world to think? Is the God of Israel impotent? Can he not save his people? Have they fallen so far that God has cut them off? Is that why the pagans still rule? Isaiah reassures his people and us that that is not the case. It's not true. Verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it for the mouth of the Lord has Spoken. Do you see that? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. When God's chosen people repent of their sin, when they turn from their unbelief, when they look on Him whom they have pierced, and they cry as one would cry the death of an only son, then they and the whole world will see the glory of God. This is an amazing truth, beloved. The glory of God is bound up in the redemption of the nation of Israel. The Apostle Paul picks up the same theme in Romans chapter 11. He says, verse 15, for if their rejection, that is the people of Israel, if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The power of God will be put on display for all the world to see when he redeems his people. When he redeems his people. For now... What do the nations conclude? Where is your God? Where is your God? And by the way, their God is our God. Have you ever felt the sting of that? Where is your God, Mr. or Mrs. Christian? Your God that you tell me is so powerful. Where is he? Paul says there's a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that true? It is true. What assurance 
did these ancient Israelites have that this would come true? What assurance do you and I have that deliverance will ultimately come to pass? Where is it? Look again at verse 5. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's where it is. You want assurance? Your assurance is that God said it. He said it. Yeah, but the, the nations are strong. Israel is weak. Perhaps something will interfere and, and keep God's word from coming to pass. Maybe some individuals will be able to align themselves against the Almighty in such a way as to keep this from coming to pass. Verse 6, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God, look at it, stands forever. Forever. Is God going to bring deliverance to pass? Will he redeem his people Israel? And will he redeem me? And will he redeem you? Call out! The prophet says, well, what do I say? Very simply, I want you to give him a message of human frailty and divine omnipotence. I want you to highlight for them that as far as humanity goes, you're like a blade of grass. The Word of God stands forever. Hmm. Listen, beloved, if our deliverance relied on the strength of men, if it relied on the strength of men, it would never come to pass. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Deliverance relies on the power of God, and He has promised it in His Word. grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. This chapter has a very clear Jewish origin. There's no questions about it. It speaks to the nation. The vast majority of us, that we are not of Jewish descent. But its glorious truths are still real and applicable to you and I today. Redemption has been accomplished. Is that true? It's been accomplished. When Jesus said, it is finished. My redemption was secured. Your redemption was Secured. The time of our alienation from God has come to an end. His death is paid for my sin. And if you will have him, it is paid for yours too. 
The Apostle Paul is very, very clear. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who will call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be Redemption is accomplished. It's available to you right now, right here. If you will call out. If you will call out upon Isaiah's suffering servant. For those of us who have called out. We have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true? Is that true? (laughs) Scriptures have a message for you and I, too. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way and nailed it. To his cross. Redemption has been provided. Wow. Wow. The path is still repentance, though. You know that, right? The path is always repentance. You know the beauty about being a follower of Christ? The entrance is repentance and the lifestyle is repentance. We get to practice all the time to repent. That's what it means to follow Christ. To turn to Him. Oh, I love the way the prophet Isaiah speaks about this journey of repentance. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Just listen. The prophet says, Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Wow. Wow. Come, let us reason together. God is offering to you and me that He will transform us. Not just a little bit, but from scarlet to white. The power the suffering servant. Repentance, beloved. Turn to God. And finally, is the whole issue of reliability, right? Is this, is this true? Is this true? Is 
God really going to redeem me? Pastor, I have messed up. I have really messed up. Is God really going to redeem me? I mean, Pastor, if you, if you really knew what I am like on the inside, if you really knew the kind of thoughts that I have, if you knew some of the things I've done, are you sure God is going to redeem me? Apostle Paul was sure. The Apostle Paul was sure. He writes at the end of the great chapter of Romans, chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am, what? Convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us for the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. By faith, we put everything on the promise of God given to us in His Word. Beloved, we can see historically this Word comes to pass. We know prophetically it will come again. Just as sure as God will redeem Israel, He will redeem you. He will redeem you. Will you call out to Him in faith this morning? It is not by my strength. It is not by my might. It is by Your Spirit, O Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, it is by grace from beginning to end. It is but your grace that you do not exterminate us, wipe us out, crush us as our sin deserves. It is by your grace that you sent your only beloved Son to come and to stand in and die in our place. It is by your grace that you have called us unto yourself, that you have compelled us to come, that you have opened our eyes to the truth of your word, that you have filled our heart with faith and love for you and and caused us to rejoice in those things that we once want no part of. O oh Lord, it is your grace that continues to keep us saved. For we remain sinners, saved only by that grace. O oh Lord, renew it in us. Strengthen us. As we proceed now into this great and glorious week in which we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, O oh, Father, please grant us a childlike faith. O oh, Lord, let us have just a piece of what that little child had. A shameless, 
willingness to look out the window for the return of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.